Thank you, David. Good morning, church family. Glad to be with you. It's a busy week, lots of fun stuff happening. Super excited about uh, our time at Trunk or Treat Wednesday. Can't wait to have that again. We didn't get to have it last year. Y'all remember that? And so uh, it's, it's been two years now. And so excited, invite people. We've got the word out. Make sure neighbors and kids and families, and even if you don't have children or even if you're not planning on coming up here, just encourage you to show up. Show up. Uh, be a part of it. Just be here interacting. We've got 1,200 hot dogs that's going to be grilled. We upped our number by 200. Uh, so, so Heath and Dan, be ready for those extra 200. I think you can handle that. And uh, we're just excited about what's going to happen. I also want to just make note of something that Rick mentioned. We've been reading through and going through some prayer exercises through the book of Ephesians. And this week, big challenge in front of us. And I hope many of you take it on. We're going to, as a church family, work on memorizing Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 together. I've got a whole process on the app for you to do that. You just go into the app Sundays and hit AHA Bible Reading Plan, and that'll walk you through. If you've never memorized scripture before, uh, let me just encourage you to be part of that. You don't have to get all 10 or 11 verses in. Just do as much as you can this week and uh, see what happens when you get this amazing passage that we're going to be walking through into your heart and mind. I never thought I could uh, memorize scripture. And then I started challenging myself uh, two years ago as a spiritual discipline to start memorizing scripture. And it's incredible what God does in that. And if I can do it, I'm not the brightest guy. Anybody can do it. So we're going to get right into Ephesians 2 as we get in. So let's go, folks. Here we go. Good morning, church. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions. <laughs> Good morning again. And sins is which you live, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit is now at work at those who are disobedient. All of us also used to live among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Again, welcome to church, deserving of wrath. You may want to throw away your Jeremiah 29.11 mug, get on Etsy and get you a new coffee mug that just says, I am by nature deserving of wrath. Wrath. What a great way to start. This passage that we're going to get in today is tough, but I want to begin with this because I want us to understand something. And I want to begin with a story. My junior year of college, years and years ago, decades ago now, I was completely smitten. My life was turned upside down. I was staying up late, I was skipping class, I was doing whatever I could because a petite eastern Oklahoma girl had allowed me to take her out on a few dates for several months, and I was upside down walking on air, falling in love with this girl. But I knew that no matter how good the relationship was, I knew that I had to do two things. I was acting different, 
My friends were wondering what the heck was going on with me. They had never seen me act like this around a girl. Usually I just dated a girl and then tried to date two or three at the same time. But this one, I was committed. I was committed. And I was smitten with Allison Jameson. Almost called you Allison Perkins. You were not Perkins at the time. But I knew two things were gonna happen, no matter what. I knew that, first of all, that if this relationship was going to continue, this relationship that we had begun with prayer and that we had talked about God, that's what was so different about it for me. I'd never cared about someone like her, but I knew that there was this truth swirling around in my mind. And it was two truths. One was if I was going to continue this relationship, a lot of things about me were going to change. And the next truth followed with that truth. And that was, if I was going to continue this relationship, I was gonna have to come clean. I knew that I was gonna have to have a heart-to-heart with this sweet, kind, Christ-like young lady and tell her that I hadn't been always the person I was as a 20-year-old or 21-year-old. That I had changed and I had a past, and I had some baggage, and I had to have that conversation, and I was terrified to have that conversation. I was terrified. Terrified because I was really liking this girl, and I knew that according to the ways of the world, that when I unpacked those bags, it could probably only go one way. So I finally got around to having that heart-to-heart with Allison, and we got outside, and we uh, got outside her house. She had this park right across the street from her and we got together at this park and uh, we started to chat together and I said, I gotta tell you something. And I was nervous. I was sweating. I was probably about as nervous that night, Allison, as I was the night I asked you to marry me. I don't know. But I started unpacking all the sins I committed. I started just laying it out there. I confessed to her I had a lot to share about who I was and the mistakes I had made and the unhealthy relationships I had been in and the sinful actions that had become habits in my life, the things that I had built into my life. I laid it out there. And Allison listened and listened. And the whole time she was listening, I was thinking, this is it. There is no way this relationship's going beyond tonight. She's going to drop the hammer. But as I finished, she simply looked at me and she said, Jake, I'm not falling in love with who you were. I'm falling in love with the guy you're becoming. Oh, man. Maybe for the first time in my life, that was the moment I understood the gospel. That was the first time that I really remember realizing that my actions and who I was did not match up to what I deserved and what I got. And that's what I started to understood was the gospel. And I know this morning many of us have been there. Have you ever had a moment when you had to choose between who you were and who you wanted to be or maybe more to the point And maybe you're here this morning where you have a moment where you have to come face to face 
with who you are and who you've been and what you received from Christ. Because the story of the Bible is summed up like this. The story of the Bible is that what we deserve and what we receive are two vastly different things. Amen? Who we are and what we deserve. God gives us something indescribably better. When we were in our very acts of sin and rebellion, God is at work bringing us back to life. That's the story of the Bible. That's the good news. When we were rebelling, God is in the act of redeeming. And this is what Paul is trying to do in chapter two of Ephesians. He's going to challenge us by reminding us who we've been so that he can challenge us and tell us who we're supposed to be. So let's pray about this passage. Grab a hand. Let's pray that God will move in this space. There's, I know there's all kinds of things going on, but let's ask God to move and act in this time. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we are thankful for who you are, for the way that you have taken all that we cannot be and you've made it possible through your life and your death and your resurrection. And we thank you from the bottom of our hearts this morning. And God, what we pray for today as a church family is that we will have an aha, a realization, a revelation that you will move in here. Come Holy Spirit, come God, come Lord Jesus and be among us and show us truth today of who we are and who we are supposed to be. And God, challenge us. God, we pray for that. God, we also lift up our friends and our brothers and sisters, the Hill family. We pray for Sean and Cheryl and their kids. We pray, Father, for the trauma and the difficulty they're going through this morning. We pray for you to cover them in your love. Be near to them today. God, we also lift up another church in town. We're praying for these churches because we want your will to be done all over town. And so we pray for our friends at the Spanish Revival Church this morning. Um, Father, I don't know much about that church. I just ask that your will will be done in that place today. May people come to know you. Lord, we love you. We give you this time. May you challenge us today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Let's have an aha with this. Back to Ephesians chapter 2. The y'all version. Every you in Ephesians is plural, so we're going to read it as such. Texas version of the Bible. As for y'all, y'all were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which y'all used to live when y'all followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. More about that, what that means next week. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires, its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, church, I want to begin with this because here's what Paul's going to do. He's going to expose two lies that all of us believe from time to time, maybe even believe in here today. And at one time, I would probably bet all of us have believed. Two lies that Paul wants to confront for those of us that have a relationship with God and believe in God, but still struggle with these lies. And the first of these lies is this, 
is he's confronting the idea that we believe that sin isn't that big of a deal. That sin isn't a big deal. And the second lie he's confronting is that he's confronting the other lie that is opposite lie, that salvation can't possibly be so good. That salvation really hasn't changed that much about me. Or that living in Jesus isn't really the greatest thing ever. Two lies that all of us at some point believe. So what Paul's done is for a whole chapter, chapter one, he has lavished great words on us. He has told us who we are and the great things that what has happened because of Jesus, that were created in him for praise, that we were chosen in him, that we were purposed for a plan, secure in the Holy Spirit, full of hope and inheritance and resurrection power, that we are the representation, the body of Christ on earth. He just pours it on in chapter one. But then in chapter two, he stops. And before he tells us about the next revelation he wants us to have, he tells us first who we used to be. And instead of lavishing on all this good identity, he reminds us of our past identity. And in today's term, he basically says, the apocalypse you were living in was the zombie apocalypse. You were zombies. Now, let me connect this, but that's what Paul said. You were dead. You were objects of wrath. You were dead. You were zombies. That's right. The walking dead, the living dead, Zeds, brain eaters, whatever you want to call them. That's the creature that in our culture we have obsessed over. 1932, first movie about zombies came out, and then our culture has kind of grown to really love zombie culture, I guess, if there is such a thing. 1968, Romero's Night of the Living Dead comes out. And since that time, zombies are all around us. We'll probably have a zombie Wednesday night out here or two, right? At Trunk or Treat. They're costumes. They're in video games. There's all kinds of movies. There's long-running TV shows on AMC about zombies. Even a couple years ago, which isn't funny now, the CDC on Halloween put out a zombie preparedness kit on their website as a joke. Some people took it serious because nobody is smart in our culture anymore, right? And we thought it was real. But a zombie, if you're unfamiliar with what zombies are, or you need a reminder, is a will-less creature. And they're bent on getting whatever feeds them. In particular, they feed on brains. Brains. Brains, right? That's what a zombie is. And in our culture, or in our pop culture, they are a work of fiction. But did you know that zombies actually exist? Maybe not in human form, although I would bet that I've seen zombies at restaurants when everybody's staring at their phone. I'm pretty much, I'm seeing that. Let's not talk to each other. Let's text people that are not here, right? That's zombies. But zombies actually exist in nature. Take, for instance, the pink flamingo. I'm going to say a little bit of word about the pink flamingo. It's beautiful and pink, but it's all pink and beautiful thanks to brine shrimp. Or as we know brine shrimp, those little things you used to be able to order out of the back of comic books as kids or get them uh, in joke stores, brine shrimp are what we call sea monkeys. 
And you'd get that little packet and you'd pour the sea monkeys in the water and they were supposed to come to life. Anybody ever do that, right? Mine never came to life or I always thought, well, they're so small, who even knows, right? Well, zombies are pink because of brine shrimp. Here's what happens. This is so weird, so weird. Brine shrimp or sea monkeys, we'll go with sea monkeys, they live in water and they get infected by a parasite. Microscopic tapeworms get into brine shrimp. This is so weird and gross, so just hold on for a second. And these microscopic parasites start to work in the sea monkey's little brains, and they start to do two things. First, they start to bring all these sea monkeys in to swim together in schools. They make the sea monkeys actually form up into groups. We don't know how that works, but the, somehow the parasite sends a trigger through the neurons of the sea monkey, and the sea monkey's like, I'm tired of hanging out by myself. I'm gonna go hang out with some other sea monkeys. And so they group up. The other thing the parasite does is changes the color of sea monkeys from translucent to bright, bright red. That is half of the parasite's goal. Half of the parasite's goal is just to turn them red, and once they turn red, now the parasite can get on to phase two of its plan. It turns them red, and now flamingos, walking through the water as you see here, I should have got one on one leg, right? Um, They now can see all the brine shrimp a lot easier, and they're all clumped together. So they feast on brine shrimp and they eat all the brine shrimp and they ingest the brine shrimp and now the parasite, this is the gross part, now has accomplished its goal because this certain tapeworm can only reproduce in the stomach of flamingos. But in turn, by eating all those red sea monkeys, flamingos who would be white otherwise turn pink. Nature is crazy. (laughs) It's weird. It is crazy. But that is the zombification. It's nuts. A zombie sea monkey controlled by a microscopic parasite turns a much larger creature a different color. Also, the parasite can reproduce. That's nuts. And you think humans will go far for a date, right? Parasites will go far for a date. Hey, uh, you want to meet me at 7 at the... inside the stomach of a flamingo, right? I mean, that's crazy. It's crazy. But metaphorically speaking, zombies are all around us. This is what Paul's actually saying. Zombies are the walking dead. Paul says, as for you, you were dead in your sins. You had no life in you before you met Jesus. Zombies follow an instinct, right? Eat brains. Paul says, you were following mindlessly the ways of the world. That's inferred there. You were just doing what everybody else was doing in your transgressions. Zombies are motivated by a virus, I guess. That's what we say, right? There's a virus and that's what starts the zombie apocalypse. Paul says, without Christ, you're under the ruler of the kingdom of the air. You're motivated by another force that you think you're in control of and you're not. Again, more on that next week. Zombies only look for their own desires. They're not social creatures. They're selfish. Zombies, as all movies I've seen, don't care about other zombies. Paul says, when you were under the power, you gratified your flesh and its sinful desires. You cared only about yourself. 
And zombies, according to our, I don't know why zombies are so popular, but I think they're only good for one thing, target practice, right? That's why we love zombies in America, because we love violence, right? And Paul says, when you were on that way of life before, you were leading to being an object of wrath. Now that may be hard to accept, but the Bible's truth is this, that all people walking in sin are the walking dead. Some of us in here today are in that place. You're a zombie. Many of us, probably more of us than those who are just the walking dead, are caught in the in-between. And the scandal of Scripture is the claim that evil is not somewhere out there. The offense of Scripture is that evil is not at the abortion clinic only or the warmonger or the sex trafficker or the terrorist or the drug trafficker or the carpet bomber. Those things that we can easily call evil. The offense of the Bible is that the claim of all evil runs right through every one of us. That the line of good and evil isn't out there and I'm somehow on the good side. The Bible claims that the line of good and evil runs through each of us. Sin is serious. It's serious. And that lie that we believe that sin is not serious is simply that, it's a lie. Paul says it, it kills you. You were the walking dead. And Jesus teaches this all the time. Four times in John 8, he, he, he says to the Jews, those who don't believe in me will be condemned. See, sin isn't a small wrongdoing. According to scripture, sin is the breaking of God's good creation. Big or small, heavy or light, sin breaks God's created order. And if a passage ended there, we'd have to wrestle. And the text would be bad news, wouldn't it, church? But then there's verse four. And but four, verse four is, but God. But God. It is but God. Pick it up here. But because of the great, his great love for us, God who was rich in mercy, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace y'all have been saved. So important to read that plural. So important. It's y'all who've been saved. When you were dead, wandering aimlessly, Jesus reached down and lifted you up. What you deserved, he took. Verse four and five says, what we didn't earn, what we couldn't earn, he gave. What we could do nothing for, he freely poured out on us. So the point Paul's trying to make is this, is the but God part changes everything, but he says verses one through three first, because if we never embrace who we were and what we deserved, objects of wrath, then we can never embrace what we have. Right? We can never embrace what we have. And that's the power, though, of the second lie. The second lie's power probably has more of a hold over us than the first one. Many of us in here probably understand that sin is, is, is painful and difficult and causes all kinds of chaos in the world. But a lot of us 
believe the lie that salvation can't be that great. Because we really haven't changed that much about our life. We believe the lie, and then we end up treating salvation, we end up treating the but God in our life as just a second-hand birthday gift that gets put in a cabinet or thrown away or put up in a closet and thrown away. We forget about it. It's a fruitcake at Christmas. We're appreciative of the gift, but nobody's going to eat it because fruitcake is disgusting. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> right? That's how we treat our salvation. The power of the second lie is that salvation can't be that good. But listen to this truth. The truth that Paul is getting to is this. It's when we were putting God to death, while we were getting something, while we were getting to something that we deserve death from, God, instead of giving us what we deserved, he got to work over here, bringing us to life. He got down in the dirt. Instead of messing with the dirt that we keep creating, he took the dirt and he made it into resurrection life. Amen, church. Come on, white people, all right? Good grief, that's good. That's the gospel. What I deserved from Allison was a break of the relationship. What I got was grace. What all, what all of us deserve is we were building death and continue to build death, and Jesus offers us life. That's the aha of chapter two. Paul continues, and he says this in six through 10, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ. That is not future tense, church. That is present tense. The reality is this, is sin separated, right? Heaven, earth. Sin separates, but God, who's rich in mercy, creates a new space where we are seated in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. So that, in order that, in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In other words, God wants to use you to show his grace to the rest of the world. And then he says this, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, church family, when we start to break down that lie that salvation isn't all that good, we start to realize the truth of these words and it changes everything about us. It changes the idea that, well, God can't use me or that I'm hopeless. It changes us from who we were because we were hopeless into who we are now, which is saved it changes everything. When we begin to understand the gospel, something happens. We change. We realize the status that God has given us has nothing to do with our merit or our ability. We were stone cold dead on the floor, and God raised us back to life. That's what he's saying. And I know y'all know this, but we need to hear it again. But the other thing it does is it gives us brand new identity. Because when we realize that we did nothing to be saved, 
that our merit or ability or social status or class, then we get a brand new identity and we get to get rid of the identities and false definitions of self that we all cling to in our world. That's why Paul says in verse eight, it is by grace you have been saved so that no one can boast. What he's saying is no longer are you going to divide over the things that you divide over? God is doing something new. This identity is all that matters, not the identities we come up with over here. Nobody can boast. We are no longer divided in Christ by race or politics or gender or opinions or even church traditions that we think are biblical that aren't. Instead, what Paul is saying here is those status things and those identity markers have become irrelevant because those things are passing away. It's what Rick read for us a few moments ago, Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female. All have become one in Christ. So the identities that we wrap ourselves up in are irrelevant. They're zombies. Those things are passing away. Church family, Jesus didn't die for you to become a Republican or a Democrat, but I know my audience, so we'll lean on the Republicans, right? Some of you laugh. Others of you are grabbing your gun, right? Right? Settle down. Jesus died for you to have a brand new identity, not co-opted by the powers and principalities of this world. He didn't die for us to be better Caucasians or Hispanics. He didn't die for us to be an American, and he didn't die for us to be Canadian Wildcats. He died for us to be little representations of Jesus everywhere we go. Those are the main identity we have. He died so that we could have one true identity, family of God, Christian Disciples of Jesus. So we could be the body of Christ. A family of God adopted sons and daughters. And for those of us today who are ready for an aha moment and open our eyes to the truth, this will change everything. It should change everything. And if you say this morning, well, it's already changed something for me or it's already changed everything for me, it should continue to change everything for you. People who understand this truth become the most kind, generous, humble, loving, hospitable people on earth because they look like Jesus. They begin to see their neighbors, not as people who are somehow divided on this side and they're different than them, as awful, or people that they don't get along with. What they start to see the world as is people who are in need of what we've been given. But God, who is rich in mercy, and they walk every day in this newness, and they have this life about them because they realize, as verse 10 says, it's on the screen still, that we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. This is a mission-focused scripture that is supposed to lead a mission-focused people. We are on a mission. 
Man, one of the clearest examples I've ever seen of that was in 2009. I was at Poncha Springs, Colorado. Many of you probably driven through Poncha Springs, didn't even know it. You go, if you're going skiing at Monarch, you drive through Salida. It feels like you're still in Salida, the little town right before the Y, Poncha Springs. Working with the Poncha Springs Church of Christ. It was the first night we got there. We got there, we were getting settled in. We had 65 plus teens with us. We were gonna do a, a traveling VBS and mission trip with the kids, with our high schoolers. And we get there and one of the elders shows up uh, to the church building and he goes, hey, y'all, tonight do the Devo out at my house. We got something special planned for you. And so we go, okay, what's going on? And he tells us that what they've been doing is a few months before that, a lady had moved to town. And the lady had moved to town because she knew that her husband, who was down south of them at the Buena Vista Correctional Facility, was about to get out of prison. And she was looking for some needs. They had small children. She needed some stuff in her life. And she had run into one of the church members at the Poncha Springs Church of Christ, and they had offered her help. They said, we'll get you car seats. We'll get you whatever you need, groceries. They found a small apartment for her. They got her hooked up. And over the last few months, on her visits to the prison and on her letters to her husband who was in the prison, she was writing all this stuff down, telling her husband about this church that had done something. Her husband was in jail for drug trafficking. She had had a mess of a life. They had just got their children back. They had been in the system for a while in foster care, but they were trying to get their life back together. And that night, the elder said, y'all need to come out because he got out of prison yesterday. <laughs> and y'all need to come out because we're baptizing them both in my hot tub tonight. And so we went out there to this baptism. And it was pretty cool because it was surrounding this hot tub and the hot tub wasn't, it was awkward because the hot tub wasn't quite big enough to dip them back in and all this stuff. But it was just so cool. Because what we witnessed that night was a life that was headed one way because it was following the ways of the world and it was a life that was a zombie getting clean and being brought into the life of Jesus Christ. Two lives. But the other thing that I'll never forget about that that maybe is equally as powerful was that that little church family of about 60 people who the furthest one away was 90 miles. Most of them didn't live in Poncha. Most of them were all over the mountains up there. You know, if you've been around rural Colorado towns, that's the way it works, right? Your church comes from miles and miles away. This was a, a Saturday night there wasn't a church service going on, but I will never forget 100% of their membership showed up for that baptism. 100%. It blew my mind. Unbelievable. And in that moment, I, 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 we went back and the kids, we had a Devo with the kids and I changed my whole mind and I told my kids this. I said, you wanna know what church is? That's church. Not only because we witnessed the baptism, but because what you saw tonight was people actually cared about other people moving from death to life. 
And they had seen church people in their life over and over when we had a youth baptism at their church we would walk through the hallways on Wednesday nights and go, and we're having a baptism. It's one of our outreach kids, or it's one of these things happening. And they had seen adult after adult after adult forget the major change, that salvation is a big deal, and they had seen them all walk away. Well, I gotta go home. I gotta go do stuff. And they had forgotten that there was a lie being told to them, that salvation isn't that big of a deal. And that night, they got to see those two lies get torn down. Sin is devastating, but salvation is a lot stronger. And the whole church family showed up for it. So I got two things to challenge you with as we finish, just two questions. First one goes to the Christians in the room. This is a weird question, but you need to think about it. Have you been saved too long? that this is all just routine. That what you're concerned with is what you don't like about the church or what you're concerned with is what you don't, you don't like this person over there or this or somebody took your seat. Maybe you've been saved too long because you've forgotten what it means to move from death to life. And that this isn't a club of getting my way. This is a movement of Jesus Christ to change the world. And we're not here to argue about what we pray about or what we carpet color we have. We're here to walk through the life of Jesus together. Have we been saved too long? And yes, I use the strong words on Christians. I use those strong words on purpose because sometimes I've been saved too long and I forget what a treasure it is I have in Christ. That I should wake up every morning and be like, holy Lord, <laughs> holy cow, holy Lord, holy good God almighty, you have saved me and I deserve none of it. So today I get to walk in that truth and show that salvation to the rest of the world. So if you've been saved too long, Maybe it's time to remind yourself this morning of what you have in Christ. And the second question I have is for those that are not Christians. Maybe you're a teen, maybe you're a young person, maybe you've just been checking us out for a while, maybe you're online and you haven't made a choice. And the question is, have you been waiting too long? Because this good news this morning that where you are, if you're not in Christ, is you're a zombie. But the good news is you don't have to be. Because but God who is rich in mercy is ready to shine his light on you. And this morning you can go from death to life and be a part of a party. A party of followers of Jesus who know where the world is heading. And so if you've been waiting too long, my challenge for you is make a move. If you're waiting for conditions to be right, they're not gonna be. You will always find an excuse why they're not. If you're waiting for you to have a certain level of Jesus knowledge before you come to him, you will die waiting for that knowledge. I know less now than I ever have. <laughs> 
And if you're waiting because you're nervous, nobody here is here to judge. We are here to embrace and to love and to celebrate the power of Jesus Christ. So come to the water today. Come for repentance. Come for confession. Come for whatever. If you just need to come forward and say, I just want to just, just be excited about Jesus. Let's do that. Our elders are in the back. I'll be up front. Whatever you need today, let's do that. Let's have an aha. Let's stand together and let's sing.